Hey, good morning. morning. No better place than to be the Lord's alone, huh? To be in that place of safety. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray you'll speak to our hearts and keep us going as we want to uh, continue on serving you. We just pray that we'll be faithful to you, Lord. Thank you for how much you forgive us when we blow it and when we fall short and that you're very patient with us. And we just pray that you'll encourage us to keep on going, God, for your sake, for your kingdom, for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I love the Internet webpage that you have for a couple of reasons. One is, is when I look at what I've spoken on, sometimes as I've gotten older, I kind of have forgotten. I don't have a great system. What did I ever I spoken on? And I was interested to make sure I, I have never spoken on Hebrews chapter 12. And for that matter, interestingly enough, going back to O2, no one else has either. So not sure how that happened, but uh, Hebrews chapter 12, the first three verses, because this is an awesome little section of scripture. And I've called it this morning, Running to Win. The writer says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Wonderful portion of God's word. Well, I don't know how many of you here like to run, but I suspect that the majority of us don't probably like to run. I see a lot of heads that are shaking no, they don't like to run. And if you do run, you're probably doing it because you know it's good for the cholesterol, it's good for the blood pressure, and there may be a few among you who just enjoy it. I know a lady that I work with who loves the, the running, the cycling, and the whole nine yards. Matter of fact, she had to work overtime the other day, and she cycled from Pleasanton to Hayward. And uh, that's pretty much an accomplishment. I would be out of gas and ready to go back home at that point <laughs> if I did something like that. You know, you look at the Boston Marathon, you think of the beta breakers that we have here every year. And, and when you look at the runners, you can tell the ones who are serious. And you can kind of tell the ones that are just there, hoping that they're going to be on television or they'll be interviewed. It's in their crazy costumes. And you know, when you look at them, they're not real serious about really wanting to compete in this race. But you know the ones who are because of the way they're dressed and they're frankly as, about as thin as a stick. And uh, they've won before and they're from other countries and they've come here. And they take this very seriously. When they run this marathon, when, when out the get-go, when it starts, when they cross that finish line, they want to cross it. And they have no intention of quitting. And they have no intention, for that matter, of coming in anything but first. That's how they are. That's the dedication. You know, it's interesting that the Christian life in this passage is compared, is likened to a marathon. And you say, well, when did it start? When did I enter this race? You entered this race the moment that you were converted. The moment that you were saved is when you entered into this race. You actually uh, have really no choice in that. 
you and I have entered into the race when we became believers. And if you like, the finish line ends at our death. And that's when the race will be over. Now, when I look out at this audience this morning, I can see that there's been probably a number of years that you've been in the race. Is there anyone that's been in the race more than, and you, this means you've been a believer more than 30 years, how many of you have been in the race for more than 30 years? Raise your hand. Okay. There's about five, six, seven folks. Okay, now I don't want to have a press on maybe what your age then could be on this, but anybody been in the race more than 40 years? Okay. Adel, I see a couple of folks back there. Okay, there's about six, seven, eight. I'm going to have to up this now. <laughs> I thought I might be stopping about 40. How many have been in the race for more than 50 years? Okay. All right. Uh, now I'm going to have to go a little higher. 60? Okay. 60. Okay. You know what? I take a lot of encouragement when I see folks that have been in the race that long and they're here. And you know, they're an incredible encouragement that they're still going, that they're still pressing on. The facts of the matter are, sometimes we all feel like quitting. Uh, what happens and what was happening here to the believers that the writer was writing to in Hebrews here was that they were discouraged. They were facing severe trials. There was lots of stuff going on, persecutions and the like. And they were tempted to drop out of the race because of what they were going through. And so in this little section of scripture, the writer wants to tell them to keep going. Don't quit. Go with that gusto that you had maybe when you went out the gate as a new convert and keep going strong. And there's really just four points I want to raise that what he suggests. And the first one is follow the examples of those who've run before you. If you're familiar with the chapter previous to chapter 12, chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith chapter or the Hall of Fame chapter because it's the heroes of the faith who are some of those who have run before them and they won. They've crossed the finish line. For example, look at verse chapter 12, and we're going to skip down just a little bit from our own text, chapter 12, verse 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, or sorry, enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He goes on to say from chapter 11 also that we are surrounded by a multitude of witnesses. He says that, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses that are surrounding us, picture this scene. There are these who have gone before us who are watching somehow what is occurring. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and a host of others. And when you read their stories in the Old Testament, we look back on their lives, we see that they set a good example of how to encourage us to daily run and finish this race so that one day, and we don't know when we're going to cross the finish line, we're going to join them and we're going to be there with them. And the writer is wanting to say to us that they had to suffer. You think sometimes and we think sometimes that what's going on in our lives, nobody else can identify with. Nobody's been through it like I've been through it. 
And yet the writer wants to say, oh, no, no, they had to suffer significant trials and persecutions. And they didn't quit. They didn't give up. They continued to be a witness in life and in death. I love this little verse of scripture in Acts chapter 20, where Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 24, he said, and now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Imagine that. Some of us probably would want to turn around at that point, but he didn't. Then he said this, and this is the key, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Awesome, powerful words from the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. And then if you look at, and just back to Hebrews chapter 12, just flip back now to Hebrews 11. Hope I don't have you completely confused at this point where you are. Hebrews 11, and remember this in verse, well, let's start with verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting the release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Oh, yes, there's been other saints before us who've gone through their trials and their persecutions, but they are now in this wonderful Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame chapter. The writer wants to remind us, point one, that we are surrounded by this multitude, this great cloud. And they're encouraging us by their testimonies. That's why it's good for us to be familiar with their stories in the Old Testament and see what they went through and how God delivered them and how they stayed strong. doesn't mean that they stayed perfect, but that they stayed strong, that that was characteristic of their life. They've said to us today, we were in this race. Yes, it was difficult, but we finished. Hang in there. And when I look at some of the godly men and women who raised their hands some of whom I know personally here, and I see how they have lived their lives. It's an encouragement to us here. I imagine there's some, if I'd asked about, I guess I started out about 30 years, but there's some of you who've been in the race less than five, maybe less than four, three, two. And that's exciting to the rest of us to see other people entering into the race who are becoming Christians, and they're saying, you know what? I want to take part in this because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I've enrolled, and I'm going ahead. You know, one of the areas that sometimes we have to remember to keep pressing on and to keep hanging in there is in the area of doing good to others. Remember where the writer says that we should do good to all men, especially to those who are the household of the faith. He says, don't become weary in doing good. And sometimes we are. Sometimes our jobs weary us. Sometimes we weary one another, sometimes with our words or wherever else. And we need more sleep and we're weary. But he says, don't become weary in doing good. Keep pressing on. 
especially to those who are the household of the faith. And another thing I find that we have to be careful not to lose heart and kind of sometimes want to just lower our guard on is sharing the wonderful message of Jesus Christ to those around us. Now, I know, I've, I just, as a matter of fact, read a book on this that was called Invest and Invite. And it said, for the majority of believers, if you will invest your time, you'll invest your time into those around you where, where you're with them for Jesus Christ, and you take time getting to know them and build relationships with them, then maybe for you, it's easier for you to invite them here. Some of you, if, and the truth be told, and I'm one of these at times, your knees are absolutely shaking when it comes to the idea of sharing your faith with someone, where you have to kind of start that transition into talking about spiritual things. Maybe it's the question. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And it might be the most abrasive question that came out of nowhere. You were talking about sports, and all of a sudden you move in and launch into that question, and it might seem really like going from first to fourth gear. And, you know, your beads of sweat and whatever else are coming down your forehead and your nervous wreck over it. But God will honor you for doing that. But it's in the idea that sometimes the longer we've been in this race, the less sometimes we're sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with those around us. And we need to keep on pressing on in that and the power of his spirit to keep talking about this wonderful God. Like Dean was saying, two weeks from now, we have this awesome opportunity. We have an awesome opportunity because you know, maybe you were one as well, that there's probably about two times a year that sometimes people will walk into a church building. Yes. It's Christmas usually, and it may be Easter. And so, Lord willing, over the next 14 days, we have these opportunities to say, God, who could I invite? Who could I bring that might be willing to come here and see how the Lord leads from there? So follow the examples of those who have run before you. There's a lot to learn. Matter of fact, you should be taking advantage of the opportunity of getting to know some of the saints here who have known Christ for a number of years and who are walking with him. And just find out, if you like, what's the secret? You know, how have you stayed the course? How have you not become weary to the point of where you've wanted to check out? What keeps you faithful? What keeps you going? Then secondly, the writer says, we should throw off every weight. I don't know about you, but when I do jog on the treadmill, 24-hour fitness, about six days a week, uh, the lighter I can go, the better. Matter of fact, I find that um, when you shed a few pounds, it's even easier to be on the treadmill. It's kind of hard when you're carrying a lot of excess, let's just call it baggage at this point. You don't see serious runners in marathons with a ton of clothes on. They've got it basically stripped down to the, the bare essentials. To the point that even some will shave off hair, you know, off legs and arms, just so that there's nothing else that's weighing them down. Swimmers do that, for example. They don't want any weight, any encumbrance. The writer is basically saying, you know, those things that are weighing us down, he says, throw them off. Get rid of them. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. Or other translations actually use the word weight. You just think about it. If you're trying to, you're trying to run, and you all of a sudden had some kind of chain around your ankle. And, you know, you're trying to run and you got this weight. And it's just not going to work, is it? It looked pretty crazy, too. Look at uh, chapter 11. Moses is an example in verse 25. He says, choosing rather to endure ill treatment. 
with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He didn't want anything sin to hold him back, to hold him down. And so he made that kind of a choice. You think about the sins that sometimes are holding us down. Sometimes some of those weights, some of those things that we know are in our lives. Wouldn't it be great to come to a place that's a place in our lives where we'd say, I'd rather die than to keep having these sins and weights hold me back and ruin my testimony for Jesus Christ. There's a story of a man named Jan Hus. Remember him? He was in Prague, Czechoslovakia, and he was burned alive because he refused. He refused to recant his faith when he was being tested and tried at the stake. What about us? Scripture says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Jesus, when he's talking about, you know, cutting off your hand and so forth, he's really what the whole point of it is. And you see the urgency of the writers and Paul and so forth saying that make radical decisions to get rid of those things that lead you to sin. Those very things that are those weights and encumbrances and not, and not making you be able to run that race for Jesus Christ and his strength. He says, make radical decisions to get rid of them. When Paul was in Malta in, Acts, in the latter portion of Acts and he was uh, in Ephesus there, you just come back from Ephesus and there was, remember that scene where all of a sudden a snake, a viper comes and, and bites him. And, you know, he didn't just kind of mess around with the snake. He threw it back in the fire. You know, he killed it. He was warming himself out of fire. He destroyed it. Radical decisions. God will honor us when he sees the sincerity of our hearts by the actions we take to want to separate ourselves from evil. And he'll bless us for that. And you and I know today, we know the sins that are those encumbrances, those things are the, that are the weights, the things that for us, for some reason or another, are the ones that are easily entangling us. That kind of stuff that just tends to be that that problem for us. And, and we know what that is and he knows what that is. And the sin that I'm committing and I'm struggling with may not be the same one that you are. But the point that the writer is saying is, he says, let us run with endurance and let's not let us get that and be a weight to us. And then he says in the third point, run to win. I don't know about you, but I can't believe any of these marathon runners or those who are really serious about sports that they ever enter into any kind of competition with the idea of just kind of finishing last or finishing fourth or fifth or being happy with some kind of a mediocre performance. They have these incredible high standards, disciplines, things that they are willing to do and things they're willing as far as not eating, maybe getting more rest, sacrifices that they're making in order that they'll win and that they'll compete well. My eldest daughter right now is about two weeks away from graduating from the nursing program and being a registered nurse and uh, last week, she wanted to just take a break and go see a, a movie with us. And her nurse, her instructor said, no, study, study hard, no break. So we literally, for the last week, maybe saw her just to come down to get something to eat. And that was about it. And she got 42 out of 40. She got extra credit. And God was good in the sense that she had gotten a 70 in this last course, a 73. Pressure was on and then 100%. And now the final is a week from tomorrow. So there's a lot of uh, nail biting going on at our house right now because there's a lot at stake because then she'll be able to move out 
and uh, <laughs> pay me back for or pay us back for a car payment and um, live out here possibly in the San Ramon Valley and a lot at stake. And so we're really doing everything we can, silence and quiet and everything else around our house right now for these next two weeks. But it's all about, and you know it, you might be in a situation with your job where it's about you've got to do your best. And the writer here is saying run to win. And the key on that is run in Christ. We can't run in our own strength. We absolutely can. And we're probably very familiar with the verse in Philippians 4.13 where the writer says, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, if he didn't have the words in Christ in that, it would be ludicrous. He can't do it. But it's in his strength. And I guarantee you, as we talk to each other and we say, you know, what has helped you? You know, what helps you continue to go on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, following Monday? This marathon, it's not a sprint. This what keeps you going. The wise and godly believer is going to tell you because it's been in Christ's strength. I can't take any credit that I've been able to do this in my own power. It's been in his Another key thing on this running to win is to run continuously. Sometimes I watch people at the gym who are running in a sprint for about one minute, and they're doing about nine miles an hour on the treadmill. But then they get off. And they're doing certain types of strength conditioning in that. And then they get back on, and they do another nine miles or ten miles an hour, and I'm just watching them pounding, pounding, pounding on the treadmill, and I'm just kind of continuing on my thing. But interestingly enough, sometimes and if it's about calorie burn, I've noticed that I'm burning as much calories in my prodding uphill with an incline as they are in that nine miles an hour fast, fast, fast. Now, it's totally probably two different objectives they're trying to accomplish. But the point is, is that in this race, God wants us to continue running. Uh, he doesn't want us to be running one week and then for two weeks taking off and uh, being about our own affairs and our own business. He wants us to continue running the race in the present tense. He doesn't want us to quit. And let's face it, we feel like it, but we keep going. And also in the text, he says, let us. It's a run with others. This isn't a race that God ever intended for us to do on our own and be by ourselves for. It's not an individual thing. Well, yes, individually receiving Christ is something individual, But now that we're in this race together, that's why God has called us together to encourage us in the race. And how encouraging it is when a brother or a sister comes up to you, writes you a note, calls you, sends you an email or says something and says, you know, keep pressing on. Encouraged by something I saw that you did, that you're doing, that God's doing in your life. What an encouragement that is to keep going. Also in this race, we need to remember that we have to anticipate opposition. The word for race is agony or contest. And so really the point is, is that opposition and trouble should be anticipated. Now, I wish I could tell you, I so wish you would tell me that in this race that we're in, this marathon that we're in, that there will never be one problem, one desire to ever quit, never one hurdle, that it's never uphill. If a matter of fact, it's always downhill. You know, it's just as easy as it could be. That's how it is. I wish I could tell you that. But it's not that way. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 30, Since you are going through the same struggle, there are enemies that the Bible says who oppose us. 
and don't want us to run this race. And so it should be expected. Paul also said in Colossians chapter 2, he said, I want you to know how much I'm struggling. Very open words. And it's encouraging to hear the great apostle Paul, who's in a sense being very transparent and identifying with the believers and saying, I just want you to know how much I'm struggling. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, certainly there's an aspect he was talking about there of struggling. The whole symbol of the cross means death and suffering. Paul also said, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the Lord or with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Imprisonments, beatings, strippings, and mockings. You think about it when you read the stories of the New Testament, Old Testament saints. Probably very few of us, if any of us here, right in this company today, have gone through those type of physical sufferings. And yet there are even Christians today, right today, 2007, who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Agony. We don't know a lot about it, maybe, but it requires great effort, discipline, determination. And it determines and requires a long-term point of view on how all of this is going to play out. It's not a sprint, like I said a minute ago. And then lastly, on this point, I'm running to win. It's the race is the, the one the race that we're to run is the one that Jesus Christ has set before us. He's the one who's determined the race. He sets out the terms. He marked it out. We don't have the luxury today to say, well, I'm going to run the race the way I want to run it. Or I'm going to run this particular race. Or that kind of race. It's the race of a marathon for as long as we're here on this earth. And then lastly, and the key to all of this is this wonderful phrase, fix our eyes on Jesus Dean said there's probably two great words that sum up the Christian life, trust and obey. And if I were to go with the phrase, I would say fixing our eyes on Jesus is the key. What makes the difference between the one who fixes their eyes on Jesus as opposed to the one who doesn't? If you were to be asked by somebody who knows you well, would they say that you're someone that characteristically rather than looking at problems, rather than looking at the circumstances, rather than looking at the waves and all that follows with that, would they say you kind of are prone to do that? Or are you a person that fixes your eyes on Jesus Christ? Is that what you're known for? I want to be known for that. I want to be known that when there's a problem, that I'm fixing my eyes on him. Because that brings a certain tranquility, doesn't it? That is what brings in this this word that's been used three times in just these three verses in chapter 12 is this word endurance. That's, if you like, what separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls here among us today is having that endurance. And the scriptures say that that's a fruit of godly character. Sometimes probably we wish it was a 100-yard dash that we were in, but it's a marathon. They don't require speed marathons but they'd require determination and a finishing power. And we're to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We're not to look to anyone in that sense or anyone else. Our eyes are to be on him. 
They're not to be on our spouse, God bless them. Not to be on our children, not to be on our job, not to be on our investment portfolio even. They're to be on him. It's interesting when that wonderful story where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he's talking about the need for Nicodemus to be born again in John chapter 3. And he makes reference to that wonderful little story in Numbers 21 about the serpent. And how the Israelites in, in Numbers 21 were sinning and grumbling against God and against Moses. God tells Moses, you know what I want you to do? I want you to take a serpent. And matter of fact, they were being bitten by a, these snakes for their disobedience and their rebellion. And God says, I want you to take a serpent and make a bronze one and stick it on a pole. And then he says, I want you to have it so such that when each Israelite looks to individually to the bronze serpent on the pole, that they'll be cured. It was the responsibility of each one to look and fix their eyes on that symbol, that snake that God had made to be the cure. That's what God wants us to do today is get our eyes off ourselves and get them on Jesus. And you know, you can really tell that, and I'm as guilty of this as, as probably all of us, is just listen to yourself talk. And you'll know if your eyes are on Christ or on yourself. I've, I've talked with people, and um, it's a, sometimes it's a mistake that is easy to make. Somebody tells you something. I didn't sleep well last night. And you say, I didn't either. So, okay, I, you just shut them down from you asking them, well, why didn't you sleep well? So now it's, oh, well, I didn't sleep well. I have a headache. Well, I have a worse one. You know, it's just on ourself. And we do that. I've tried having conversations with a couple of people at work that continually do that. And, I, and it's just, I'm waiting, to, I'm waiting for them to follow up with a question to something I've said and not turn it back on themselves. Fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I think it was, it's been in some movies where you see this. They're called the Oxford Crew. There's those guys in Britain. It's real popular, that race where they're in that long, sleek boat. They're like this beautiful shell, and there's these guys in it, and they're rowing, and they're like just straining, and they're, you know, they're sweating. And what's awesome about it is their movements are completely in sync as they're pulling those logs in the water. What's interesting, though, is those men have their backs to the finish line. And so you might say, well, they have their backs to the finish line when they're rowing. They can't see. So how do, how do they know what's, what's ahead here is they're in the back? How can they row, if you like, an effective race if they can't see it? And the interesting thing is, is that they're foc- focusing on the coxswain. He's the guy, if you've seen him in the movies or you have the privilege of seeing this real and up close and personal, if you like, is he's the guy with the megaphone and he's the one sitting at the end of the boat facing the crew. And he's the only one who knows where the finish line is and he's shouting on to them. And so the men who are on those oars, they're looking to him. They're not looking backwards at the finish line. They're looking to him and they're obeying his commands And they're counting on him to coach them to the finish line. And he's the one who's pacing them. He's the one who's encouraging them. And he's the one that they are trusting is going to get them over that finish line. They're counting on the coxswain to enable them to finish the race strong. And you can see the analogy, can't you? 
that we finish strong by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our coxswain. And if you like today, if you want to change the analogy from the marathon of running, each of us is rowing. And each of us is trying to be in sync with the leading of the Holy Spirit and how he's guiding us so that we can get to that point. And he too will pace us. And he'll direct us through his word and by his spirit so that we're in this position to where we can finish strong until that race is over. And as I said to you earlier, where is that finish line? Some of you are saying, I want to see the finish line. I'm tired. I'm tired. Just get me there. Adel says, yeah. (laughs) And I understand. Well, it's different for each of us. That finish line is, is when God calls us. God calls us to be home. And you know, you may have 40 more years of this marathon. You may have six more months. You may have one more year. We don't know. On my birthday on March 6th, it was interesting just to see the contrast of how quickly we cross from here to eternity. I was working uh, at the department, and I took a 911 call from a really sweet, wonderful lady that just was just very gracious, a lady in her early 60s, but her husband wasn't waking up next to her in bed. And I could tell, having taken these kind of calls over the years, that this was bad. I mean, he was blue. She couldn't see his chest going up and down. And he passed away in his sleep. And I don't think she really understood the fullness of it at the time of the call. I was on that phone call probably for about 30, 40 seconds. And then on the recording, you hear, 10 seconds later, the next phone call I take is from my wife singing happy birthday to me in my ear. And I was just thinking that was just the contrast of how quickly, how different life is. One moment, someone's dying. And the next moment, we're celebrating somebody's birth. But that is how it is here on the earth. And we don't know when that finish line is. His finish line was right there. I don't know if he knew Christ or not. But that was his finish line, if you like, on this earth. And we're here, obviously, today, still going. You might be thinking, you know what, it's, it's, it's too late for me. Okay, I've been a believer, but I've made a lot of mistakes, you know. Um, it's too late for me to really be a strong finisher in this race. Uh, I don't know how much longer I've got, but there's just been a lot of stuff that's gone on over the years that has really been bad. And if you feel that way this morning, I, it just reminds me of a story of a man named David Flood. And he was a Swedish man who gave his life to Christ in his youth. And he married a young woman named Sophia. And they both felt called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in Africa back in 1921. They wanted to work with people who had never heard the gospel. And the work was hard. The conditions were horrible. The people were unresponsive, and they were hostile, and their lives were in constant danger. Over the course of their time in their missionary work, they had two children, and shortly after their second child was born, Sophia, his wife, passed away. David was already consumed by doubts and discouraged by a lack of results and was devastated. All he had to show for his efforts in being in Africa and having left Sweden to serve Christ was just one convert, one young boy. And he felt he had sacrificed his wife and the best years of his life for what? One kid? He felt he'd been a fool for bringing his wife to such a dangerous place as Africa. 
and he was eaten by guilt, and he was despairing. And under that cloud of defeat and failure, he decided to leave Africa. He took his young son with him because he had to leave his infant daughter behind because she was so seriously ill to travel. Remember, this is back in the 20s and 30s. Missionary couple took her in, and when they passed on and finished the race, she was passed on to another missionary couple who later raised her in the United States. Well, meantime, fast forward here. David was living back in Sweden. He turned his back on the faith. After his second marriage dissolved, he began living with another woman. He thought very little of the daughter that he had not seen since she was an infant. But his daughter, and her name was Aggie, thought about him. And she had learned about the work that he and her mother had begun in Africa, and she wanted to talk to him about it. She married, but always had it in her mind over the years that someday she would like to meet her dad. Years later, finally, she did arrange to meet him in Sweden, and she found her 73-year-old bedridden father living in a shabby apartment littered with liquor bottles all over the place. She went to her dad, and she told him she loved him, and that God did too. And then she went on to tell him about his one convert and that he'd grown up to be a gifted teacher in the church in Africa and led hundreds to Jesus Christ and established the church. And then David threw himself, when hearing that, he wept and he threw himself on the mercy of God. And he asked God to forgive him for his rebellion and wasted years. David didn't know at the time when he repented and turned back to Christ that he only had six more months to live. But those were six months, as the story's told, of productivity and restoring broken relationships. And after nearly 40 years of falling on his face, David got up and finished the race. And amazingly enough, he finished strong those last six months. And the encouragement for you and I today is, is as we're sitting here, if God can do it for someone like David Flood, then he can do it for you and me. It's never too late. It's never, ever, ever too late to get back on course and pursue Christ with our whole heart, just like our sister was singing this morning. See, brothers and sisters, it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. Let's pray. Lord, we want to bless your name because you are our author and perfecter of our faith. And you're our example. And Lord, today we just want to fix our eyes on you. And we want to tell you afresh that we are so grateful to be in this race. We're grateful for your blood. We're grateful that you've saved us. We pray that as we are in this marathon, some of us for a number of years now, some of us more recent that will stay true to you, that we will indeed throw off the encumbrances, throw off the weights, the sin that so easily entangles us, that we'd be willing to let go of it for your sake. Pray we'll be honest with you today, God. Pray that we'll be willing to tell you afresh from our heart that we want to serve you wholeheartedly in your strength and in your grace. Pray you bless us as we now part, pray that you give us um, ears and eyes for that matter to see those that need to hear about you. That we will not be silent, 
but that we'll be encouraging and loving them even in some measure of how you love. And I pray, Father, for the brothers and sisters here that they'll have a wonderful celebration in two weeks' time at Easter. There'll be many visitors, many who don't know you, so that you'll receive all the glory on Resurrection Sunday. We bless your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.